Now tonight, by special request, we have Dukkha. <laughs> and uh, basically looking at... Uh, well, the, we'll trace a journey from Dukkha to Dukkha Jnana. <coughs> the understanding of Dukkha as understood in um, insight meditation. Uh, because it's... Um, it's centrally important um, and most difficult and can be misunderstood and it's very easy to get stuck there so let's just uh, survey the whole thing Um, this is enormous, unwieldy so I hope it doesn't go on too long I'll try to summarise this Anyway, we've met with Dukkha before in Dhammachaka Pavantana Sutta, the first discourse. The Buddha starts with the middle way and goes straight into the four truths. And the four truths revolve around Dukkha. So you have Dukkha itself, its arising, its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation. Um, so you notice it's, what's central is the dynamism of Dukkha. It arises and ceases. And this is in the background of dependent arising, if something arises, it arises because of something else. And then if it ceases, it ceases because of something else. So the practice is all about relationship. And in the Four Truths, the Buddha points out, well, he says, um, if you're concerned with dukkha, check the relationship to drivenness, what he calls craving, um, literally thirst. Um, We said... Dukkha is a compound word um, based on the root ka, meaning um, empty space, while du, uh, the prefix, conveys the idea of, pa- of bad, painful, unpleasant, undesirable, and so on. So we looked at, we could look at dukkha as meaning the painful emptiness we find at the centre of our being, what David Loy calls the sense of lack something is missing Um, or the tradition also sees it as the the empty space is the hub of a wheel and the axle doesn't fit properly so the vehicle moves, if it moves at all, slowly with great grind or it can just get completely bogged down have you ever felt that your practice or your life has been completely bogged down and you can't get it to move this is dukkha um, it's always characterised by drivenness, so this is craving, and you could say that it's the gap between what is happening and what we want to be happening. As long as there's that gap, then there's dukkha. And the cessation of dukkha is, represents bodhi awakening or nibbana, the uh, going out of the fire and the cooling of the fire. So there's Dukkha itself, a key technical term, there's no English equivalent. Uh, any translation is necessarily wrong. And then you get Dukkha treated as what the later tradition calls a universal characteristic, Samanya Lakana. And this is as one of the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence or change, 
Dukkha itself and not self. Um, so this is what these three characteristics is what insight meditation is interested in. And this is what it focuses on. Um, strictly speaking, well, you get different styles of meditation, you might get the label insight meditation. But strictly speaking, insight meditation begins when the object of awareness is one or more of the three characteristics. Until then, we're doing a preliminary serenity practice to get to that point. And we talked about this in Satipatthana Sutta. Remember when the Buddha says, talks about um, the nature of arising as ceasing. The practitioner lives tracking body as body, uh, but then he switches it the practitioner lives tracking the nature of arising and the nature of ceasing so there there's that switch into what's actually being tracked is change itself, impermanence itself rather than something which is changing so there's this this shift and we'll go into a bit more detail tonight how that works Um, always um, impermanence is mentioned first then comes dukkha, then comes not-self uh, impermanence is extremely important the Buddha told his son Rahula develop meditation on the perception of impermanence for when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence the conceit I am will be abandoned and abandoning the conceit I am is code for full awakening and we've talked about Asmi mana, the conceit I am in terms of not self. Now, the word that gets translated as impermanence is at nicha. At is the negative prefix, not, and nicha means stable, constant, permanent. Um, in Sanskrit, nitya, in Pali, nicha. Now, in ordinary everyday usage, nicha refers to what can be relied upon. So in Pali you get the expression nicha dana. This is a perpetual gift. Let's say some rich person makes suitable provision in their will and BMIMC receives a perpetual gift of so many thousands of dollars per annum. Suddenly the committee is very happy and they can make long-term plans confidently because they have a reliable source of income. So this is Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche Bhatta is a reliable food supply and so on. So to be at Nietzsche, impermanent, means to be unstable, inconstant, discontinuous and therefore unreliable, not to be trusted. And if we rely on something which is unreliable, then sooner or later we are disappointed. It will happen. It's just built in to the relationship. Um, So that which is at-nature, impermanent, is also dukkha. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's the unreliability inherent in change that means that that which is anicca, impermanent, is also dukkha. 
But if you say it in English, that which is impermanent is painful. It's like you're scratching your head. Why? It doesn't make any particular sense. Or at least it didn't to me when I first read it. In the Buddhist time, the idea of the nitya or the nitya in Sanskrit, the permanent was very important because this is the ground of things. This is what gives everything its stability. So, for example, in the Upanishads, the nitya, the permanent, the constant, is the atman. This is the self, in English usually written with a big S, uh, the self that underlies everything. In other traditions, the nitya might be God. So, the creation swells about, full of suffering, etc. We are a pilgrimage people, etc. But underneath all this is God, and that is Nietzsche, and it holds everything together, and it gives all this floating impermanence meaning and purpose. Um, because this is the ground. But the Buddha is saying there is no such ground. It just doesn't exist. Um, there's nothing that underlies and stabilises what we experience as the world. And perceiving this fact, at least for him it's a fact, perceiving this creates anxiety. So if we're tracking impermanence, change, and we haven't yet felt anxious because of it, we haven't really perceived impermanence. If we really see it, then we're horrified. It's extremely anxiety-inducing. Um, it reminds me of the classic story. I looked that up in Wikipedia. Um, there's some doubt whether it actually comes from Hinduism, but let's call it Hindu. Uh, the story goes about a learned Brahmin who had a bright young son, and the son was asking him about cosmology. And remember we said in ancient India... The cosmology was you had the four great continents, Mount Maru in the centre, surrounded by the great ocean, all held together by the great wind. And the boy was very inquiring. He was told about this model. He was very impressed. And he said, but what supports the great wind? And his father says, oh, that's a very good question, my lad. I'm glad you're alert and paying attention. There are four enormous tigers north, south, east and west and the whole edifice sits on there so the boy thinks about it and he says what's underneath the tigers what supports the tigers and the father is very impressed, he says that's an excellent question, under each tiger there's a huge elephant so everything's completely stable and the boy thinks about this and he says but what's underneath the elephants says his father. This is a superb question. You've got a very sharp and inquiring mind. Under each elephant there's a giant turtle. And the boy thinks about this and he says, but what's, what's underneath the turtle? And the father is really pleased because he says, not many people inquire this far, but <laughs> the esoteric teaching is under each of these giant turtles is an even bigger turtle. And the boy is really impressed. And he says, so what's underneath that turtle? And at this point, his father gets a bit anxious and he says, 
my boy, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> and this is a Nietzsche. It's just it's turtles all the way down. There's fundamentally there's nothing there. And to actually see this, to intuit it in some way, is to provoke anxiety. Now, the three characteristics. One, there's one famous text in which the Buddha presents what he thinks these are about. He says, um, whether Tathagatas appear or do not appear, this reality is constant. The stability of Dharma, the natural order, all constructions are impermanent. This is what a Tathagata awakens to, this is what he realises. After awakening to and realising it, he explains, teaches, declares, lays it out, reveals, analyzes, and clarifies it, saying, Look. So, whether Tathagata is appear or do not appear, a Tathagata is an awakened one, so the Buddha is a Tathagata. Whether Buddhas appear or do not appear, this reality is constant, the stability of Dharma, the natural order. In other words, this is simply the way things are whether or not I'm here to tell you about it. It's just the way things are. And he goes on to say, all constructions are dukkha, all phenomena are not self. After awakening to and realising, oh, this is what a Tathagata awakens to, this is what he realises. What is the content of a Buddha's awakening? It's this fact. All constructions are impermanent, all constructions are dukkha, and all phenomena are not self. And this is what any Buddha teaches. When, the, when he teaches. Now, what he's saying is that this, these characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, not-self, they are simply part of nature. They're what we might call the laws of nature. They're simply what is going on. We, we might know about it, we might not know about it, we might care about it, we might not care about it, but the fact is, this is what's going on. Full stop. End of story. Uh, so let's just briefly look at this teaching. Um, you notice how the Buddha changes the language. All constructions are impermanent and dukkha or phenomena are not self. Why does he change? Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it includes the unconditioned. Yeah. So we talked about construction before Sankara comes from the verb karoti to build, to make, to produce to act, to perform to do from karoti we also get karma it's the same root Um, and karma of course is action, so karoti, the verb and the prefix sam with or together so the verb sam karoti to put together to construct so a construction a sankara is anything that is put together, constructed, made up out of parts. So, this building is a sankhara, this body is a sankhara, this retreat is a sankhara. It's put together, constructed, made up out of parts. But further, sankhara means anything that in turn puts together, constructs, creates. So it's also active. So this hall, 
is constructed, but it in turn constructs. So it provides a suitable environment for meditation practice. There are people out there busily paying the bills for the heating and so on. There are people who clean it up so it doesn't get too dusty. And as a result, and the, we can sit here for a month and develop a meditation practice, and this practice is constructed in part by this hall. So anything that constructs, anything that is constructed, this is Sankara. Um, and what is not constructed is the Asankata, otherwise known as the not born, not become, not made. Um, and this is the realm that we enter into with Bodhi, awakening, and Nibbana, the cooling of the fire. Um, and of course, we've touched on this before, what is it that we find in this realm of the not constructed, the unconstructed? Um, sometimes people call it the unconditioned. Um, I think it's more accurate to call it the unconstructed. Um, if we ask what do we find in this realm, well, nothing that we can adequately speak about. And why not? Because speaking is a construction. Yeah, speaking is just another construction. And thinking about it, thinking is just another construction. So there's nothing that can actually be said about it. Because whatever we say is a construction, and therefore is not the unconstructed. Does that make sense? Um, so all constructions are impermanent, all constructions are dukkha, all phenomena are not self. The term here is in Pali dhamma, so all dhammas are not self, or in Sanskrit and in English, dharmas. And we've talked about dharmas already. Um, Again, this comes back to dependent arising. The Buddha sees the world as a, as in terms of process rather than solid, independently existing things. So for the Buddha, reality is all about process and relationship, not things. Um, and when we examine process, we don't find things that are hard, that are solid, that last unchanged over time, what we find is our events. Something arises. Bang. And again, it's the language the Buddha uses. He says something arises, and then it ceases. The language is very dynamic. He's not talking about a solid something that's there and that lasts a certain period of time. He's talking about an event which arises and ceases. Um, so dharmas are these events but in particular they are experienced events and it, this comes back to what we were talking about before the Buddha as radical empiricist the only thing he's interested in is the nature of human experience in a sense this makes him very secular because he's not he doesn't make ontological commitments he doesn't create um, fanciful belief structures 
about transcendent God or whatever, or, at, or, or transcendent Atma, self, or Brahman, or whatever. He just doesn't go there. He's interested only in the nature of human experience. Anything beyond that, he's just doesn't want to talk about it. Complete waste of his time and everybody else's time. Um, he believes in devas, he believes in heavens and hells, but he believes in them on the basis of his own experience. He's experienced them. Now, one, it's difficult to argue with that. One might say, well, I haven't experienced it. Fine. But in saying what I've experienced, I'm not saying anything at all about what you have experienced. Or one might start, get aggro, start getting aggro about it, and one might say to him, Buddha, mate, you know, with the greatest respect, if you have experienced heavens and hells, then you are a lunatic, and you really need some help. I mean, you're a nice guy, you've said some really interesting things, but you are in serious need of professional assistance. Fine, one might have that opinion. But the thing is, again, it doesn't tell you anything about his experience. It tells you about your own experience and your own opinions and the kind of cultural conditioning that results in having these opinions. So the Buddha is only interested in the nature of experience. And what we find when we look closely are events that come and go these are experienced events and these are the dharmas, the phenomena. So all constructions are impermanent, all constructions are um, dukkha, all phenomena are not self. And phenomena include all of the constructions, all of the above, but it also includes the not constructed. Because the not constructed, there's nothing we can say about it we cannot speak about it, but we can experience it. And therefore, it's a dharma. Um, does that make sense? Any question about that? So these, hence, these three, anicca, dukkha, anatta, these are universal. They cover the whole range of human experience. So these are the universal characteristics. And you notice that for the Buddha, this is not a doctrine that has been revealed from above. Um, it's not a question of the scripture says so. It's simply, if you look deeply enough at the nature of human experience, this is what happens. Um, you know, whether there are people who wake up to it or not, this is what happens. So he's, this is purely naturalistic teaching. Anyway, this brings us to Dukkha Jnana. Jnana um, essentially means understanding. It's a word based on the root Nya, to know, to understand. And then you get the action suffix Na, N-A. So Nya, Na, the root plus Na. And this, in Sanskrit and Pali, this creates what's called action nouns. Um, so a jnana is a knowing or an understanding. Um, this term appears often in the Buddha's teaching, 
So, for example, he often uses the compound jnana dasana, understanding and seeing, or knowing and seeing. Oh, often use, in English, you often see it the other way around, seeing and understanding, or seeing and knowing. Anyway, you probably, I'm sure you've, you've, come, if you've, you've come across this compound before. It's very common. Knowing and, uh, knowing and seeing in this way, would you go back to the past? Would you run forward to the future? We talked about that before in a previous talk. Um, but the Buddhist teaching, uh, and the same root, gives us panya, wisdom. Um, so jnana is an understanding. Uh, but the Buddha's teaching is kind of all over the place uh, in terms of the way that the, um, the suttas are laid out. Now, this is an oral tradition, so, but um, they're classified, um, they're, they're, they're grouped together in collections, nakayas, and there were five of these, of these nakayas. And they're collected in a way which has caused great anguish and frustration to modern scholars because it seems to be just completely all over the place. And in fact, if you, if you line up the Nikayas on a bookshelf and start reading from page one and go through, you might be tempted to wonder what the hell is going on because it's just all over the place. Now, this is typical of a, uh, an oral tradition um, because these, these were never written. But the way I like to look at it is if you um, ima- uh, imagine the Dharma, um, both the way things are and the teaching of the, of the way things are, is like an enormous relational database. Does anybody not know what a relational database is? I don't. Do uh, <laughs> many, many years ago, when I was working um, temporary jobs in the public service, I got offered a job in the then Public Service Commission. This is in Canberra. And I had done this really, these really basic computer courses, including database. And I was taken into this office by this senior executive, and she's interviewing me and looking at my, my documents, etc. She seems to be pleased. And she looks up at me and she says, we need someone to work on a relational database. Do you know what a relational database is? Now, I had never heard of one. So my mind went into overdrive and I said, yes, a relational database is a database that relates one thing to another. (laughs) And she smiled and accepted this answer. So I knew that she didn't know what a relational database was either. (laughs) It all seemed to be going well, except that then we crossed the other side of the office and went to the, the, of the whole floor, went to the big boss's office. And it was a bit embarrassing because he was younger than I was. And he studies my documents and he looks at me and he says, do you know what a relational database is? <laughs> and I looked at him and I thought, I'm not going to fool him. And I said, no. But he hired me anyway. It was a very good job. It was a great job. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, a, a database is like a table. So you have um, a list of things. You might have several columns in the list. So you know what that is, table with columns. Uh, let's say you have, t- you t- so you might have three columns, first name, middle name, last name. Then you get another table 
with several columns. And one of those columns is the same as one of the columns in the first table, which means you can relate that table to this table. And then you have another table with several columns, and one of the columns in the second table is the same as one of the columns in the third table, so you can relate this one to this one, which means you can relate this one to this one to this one. Is this beginning to make sense? So you can have multiple tables and each one of them is connected in some way with at least one other table. And the whole mess is the, is the database. Imagine the, da- the Dharma to be this huge relational database. Now if you work with a database, which is what I was doing at the Public Service Commission, um, you put all the data in and then you ask a question of the database and you go do 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 and then hit the button and it churns out a report and the report gives you a particular uh, information about certain relationships among all this data you've asked it a question you've got this report now having proudly produced this report on a sheet of paper are you holding in your hand the database no, you're holding one report from the database, particularly if it's a complex database. Let's say you work away at this job for a year, two years, and you end up with this pile of reports that you've generated. If you pick up the whole pile, is this pile of reports the database? No. No. If you look at the suttas, the Buddha or someone turns up, there's some event takes place an event which comes and goes according to conditions. Some particular person asks a particular question in a particular circumstance. Remember Dandapani, stick in hand, meets the Buddha. A particular person, arrogant, interested in Dharma, has potential. That event takes place. The Buddha wraps him with an answer. That answer, and in fact the whole sutta, is a report from the database. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Is that sutta the Dharma? No. Mm-hmm. It's one report. The whole five collections of suttas, pile them on top of each other. Is this the Dharma? No. It's simply a whole series of reports generated from the Dharma. If we're looking for the Dharma, where would we find it in the Buddha's time? In, we're talking about a computer database, you look for it in the server. Where do you find it in the Buddha's time? The Buddha. And? The Sangha. The entire community who have memorized all this stuff and who have practiced it and realized it. It's like in Australian indigenous culture, the law. It's no one person who knows the law, it's the community who knows it can't be confined to one person it doesn't matter if you can list all the songs that's not the law it's some of the law so the dharma exists in the minds of the community the sangha um, based on what they know intellectually and what they have realized intuitively Um, so this is the dharma and from this the different um, reports Um, come up so 
the Buddha's teaching appears from our perspective, from a perspective of a literate society, to be completely disorganised. But it is organised, but in a very different way. Now, the early tradition decided they needed to organise jnana, understanding. They, it's quite clear that it's based on this essential framework, anicca, dukkha, anatta. That's the framework. Bam. Um, it's quite clear that the job of the practitioner is to go from here at the beginning all the way to there to, to awakening and that this journey takes you through these three characteristics. So, um, after the Buddha, presumably after the Buddha, comes the job of developing some kind of systematic way where you can organise all the teachings, the relevant ones, for the purposes of the path, in a systematic, linear way that takes you from there to there. And the first attempt... Oh, and, and so what they did, they developed a system of vipassana jnanas. So these are sometimes translated insight knowledges uh, or understandings of insight, which would be another way of translating it. Now this is the heritage that frames what we are doing here. Um, the first attempt to create a system of jnanas of how this whole process of development, of seeing and understanding actually unfolds. Uh, it begins with a book called the Patisambhidamaga, uh, The Path of Discrimination. This is a, um, a very early text. It appears in Kudaka Nikaya. Remember I said there are collections of the suttas? There are five of these collections. And the last one is Kudaka. And Kudaka means miscellaneous. And this is the glad bag. This is where everything's chucked in that didn't fit in the first four. And it's very miscellaneous. It includes stuff which, according to modern scholars, is, but some stuff is very, very early. And there's some stuff which is very late. And in here you get this book, The, the uh, Path of Discrimination, and it's late. Um, it's in the Sutta Pitaka, the... the basket of suttas but in terms of its genre it's an Abhidharma text and Abhidharma came later Abhidharma is the systematic philosophy psychology and it comes later people trying to systematise all these reports from the database uh, it probably dates from the second it's thought to date from the 3rd to 2nd centuries BC it's so early it's still oral so it wasn't written down, it was chanted. But even the tradition says this does not come from the Buddha and it was attributed to Sariputta. And of course, Sariputta is foremost in wisdom. So even the tradition said, no, this isn't Buddha, this is after Buddha. Um, and it's also, this is a text found only in the Tathagata. No other tradition of Buddhism has it. So this is a point where this particular stream is heading in its own direction and f starting to form what we call the Theravada. Uh, so, Padisambhidamaga, uh, Path of Discrimination, is the first major path manual, the first attempt to systematise 
the teachings of, of the Buddha on the, on the subject of liberation and bring them together into one orderly system. And it produces a system of eight vipassana jnanas, eight stages of insight, understanding. Um, those of you who are familiar with the jnanas, um, I'll just go through them quickly. These are comprehension, samasana jnana, arising and passing away, udayabhaya jnana, dissolution, bhanga, um, appearance is terror, bhaya or bhayatupatana, equanimity regarding construction, sankarupaka, then change of the lineage, gotrabhu, path, maga, fruition, pala. Um, centuries later in Sri Lanka, uh, a scholarly monk called Buddhaghosa wrote a bigger tome called Vasudhimaga, Path of Purification. He based it on the Path of Discrimination, which has eight Vipassana Jnanas, but he subdivided some and he ended up with 16. And it's this system of 16 that Mahasi Sairo inherited and his system of meditation is based on these 16 Jnanas. Uh, any questions about that? Is that clear? The historical bit? But the, you see the basic point is this is an attempt to impose order on the process of liberation. Um, and the first thing that strikes us about this system is its linear nature. You've got 16 yards, count them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And the practitioner starts at Niana 1, and then when they graduate, they all get, get a little tick. They get a wombat stamp, they move to Niana 2, and when they've done that, another little wombat stamp, Niana 3, 4, tick, tick, 5, boom, 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 16, bing! Checkbox. <laughs> then start again. <laughs> Why do some people go up those nyanas systematically and some don't? Ah, this is exactly the question that we're going to look at. Uh, because it, it's a very interesting problem. Um, it's going to go round and round and round forever and ever. So, oh, you don't go forever and ever. go once, you're not going to go around forever and ever. <laughs> Seven lifetimes max. Oh. John Howell said it was more like snakes and ladders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I used to refer to it as Buddha's greasy pole. You're either climbing up or you're sliding down. <laughs> you can't stand still. <laughs> Patrick, is there any mention of the... Um, I know when, when I studied with Alan Wallace, he talked about the stages of... stages to shamatha, stages to the jhana, jhana, sorry. Yeah. And uh, did they cross over? No. Are they mentioned in the... No, no they're different. Um, this is. Let's get to this because, um, well, first of all, okay, we'll definitely get back to this and remind me if I slide away from it. First of all, this emphasis on a linear develop, uh, development over time is typical of the Theravada. Theravada is very much concerned with a process over time. Uh, other traditions, not so much. So in the Mahayana, for example, you get this debate being, that's been going on for centuries of sudden awakening versus gradual awakening. 
you see in the Tibetan system where by and large gradual awakening one, but there's still a sudden awakening, you get sudden awakening streams. In Zen, by and large sudden awakening one, but there's still gradual aspects to it. So there are Buddhists who have never been convinced by this business of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever it is. And they're saying, no, you either cut through or you don't cut through. And when you cut through, you cut through now. It's got nothing to do with any kind of linear movement over time. Um, and there, you find teachings in the Buddha's teachings which would support both sides. Um, in terms of the order, how can you get a linear system? It's based on the order of the three universal characteristics. When they are mentioned by the Buddha, they are always mentioned, Anicca first, Dukkha second, Anatta third. Always in that order. Why? Why is that order important? Well, first of all, basically they're listed in order of subtlety. So Anicca is the easiest characteristic to notice. Have you noticed over the past month that your experience has changed? Duh. It's easy. You know, it's obvious. It's, uh, Anicca is the easy, easiest to notice. Uh, to go deep into it is another matter. Um, when we go deep into it, as I said, it provokes anxiety. And so dukkha is more subtle and harder to see. That is to say, the universal characteristic of dukkha is harder to see. You can easily see dukkha. Could, could I have a volunteer? Bash! Dukkha. Or you can, if in a meditation context, you could generate it artificially, sit there for two hours, do not move. And then after two hours, so what did you experience? It hurt! Ah, very good. Dukkha. So, sure, I mean, dukkha is easy. But the universal characteristic of dukkha, very subtle. To actually find that, you've, you've got to go quite deep. And anatta is the most subtle characteristic and the most difficult to see. Partly because it's so counterintuitive. Of course I exist. It's like, what are you talking about? Not self, or no self, or non-self, or philosophical claptrap. So it's counterintuitive, but it's also the most subtle because it's not a something, it's the absence of something. The absence of what we assume is here, that is, the self. So it's not a something in itself, it's the absence of something. Now, the factor that brings some order into this system is, I think, samadhi, or more broadly the serenity aspect of the practice. Now, um, uh, Mal, your question was about the linear path of jhana and the linear path of jnana, and what's the connection between them? So, when the Buddha talks about the meditation process, in some texts, he'll talk about what happens in the citta as we develop the practice. And he tracks out a linear path of development. First this happens, then this, then this, then this. And this linear path of development are the four jhanas, the four absorptions. So, you know, for example, first you, you're sending your awareness again and again to the meditation object. This is initial application. 
And then once you develop some momentum, it's just going bang, 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 bang. It's sustained application, blah, blah, blah. Later on, these two drop away and it feels like you're not doing it, the, the awareness is sustained with the object. And there's some excitement and then later on that excitement drops away and so on and so forth. So you have this linear development of the changes that take place in the chitta as we go deeper and deeper and deeper in. Then, so you always have the chitta that's doing the practice and then what it is that this chitta knows and sees, jnana dasana. Mm -hmm. Now what that chitta will know and see will depend largely on how much samadhi there is. Mm -hmm. For example, how much do you see and recognise of your nature of your own experience when, you, when the mind is roiling with the five hindrances versus when the mind has no hindrances? Do you get a different view? Yes. It's very different. So what brings order into this is the degree of concentration. So you have a system, the Buddha will lay out a system, this is what happens in the citta as the practice develops, this is serenity. This is what the citta will know and see as the practice develops, this is vipassana, this is insight. This first one has to do with the citta, the heart. This other one has to do with the whole world, including the heart. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is the, 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 the status to jhanas, uh, I think there's nine stages, I, I can't remember. Mm. But um, they are, they're more well known than the jhanas, aren't they? Yeah, I think so, overall. It's because easier to find in the, in the text and so on. <coughs> not too much reference to the jhanas. Yeah. Well, certainly this system of jnanas is maybe peculiar to the Telavada. Maybe they don't even have it in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. I'm not sure. But everybody has the jhanas. Mm. But this system of jnanas seems to be peculiar to the Telavada. This is the way they read how the whole thing works out. So it's the samadhi side that is cheetah specific. So the samadhi side that we is um, cheetah specific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so and this brings some order into it. So as the mind, as the chitta is getting stronger and more refined, first of all, ah yes, yes, definitely anicca. Oh yes, going deep with that one. Ah, there's some dukkha underneath the anicca. Mm, ah underneath that there's anatta. So you get this linear progression depending on how deep you go with the samadhi. Um, but that's not a, a, I wonder about that also because it's not always the case. No, it's definitely not, not always the case. So some people have a pretty, like some people have a different temperament to pick up dukkha yep. more than anicca yep. or some people have a different temperament to pick up Anatta, even though it's most uh, yeah. uh, subtle. Yeah. So people have been trying to see Anatta before anything else. Yeah. So there's some degree of order, but it never captures it completely. Yeah. It's always untidy. Um, for a start, if you have, of these three characteristics, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, if you have one, you have all three. They come as a package. You can't have one and not the other two. They, they're always there as a package. 
Um, all three are already present, plus individual students have different sensitivities. Some people are sensitive to one of them, but not to the others. Um, some people, we've talked about some people are very sensitive to dukkha. Um, some people are quite sensitive to change. Um, some people are sensitive to anatta. They have whole different ranges, degrees of sensitivity to different patterns. As a result, any given student's experience may not follow a tidy um, progression through the jnanas. And if you ever teach meditation, you will find students suddenly appearing in jnanas that they have absolutely no business being in. And you just have to tell them, just stop it, get out, go back to the beginning. But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So student, any given student could stumble into one of these jnanas when, according to any kind of linear system, they should not be there. But they are there. So this system is an attempt, as I said, to impose order, but it's not entirely successful. For some people, they just go bang, 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 like a textbook. Um, but for other people, it's all over the shop. And you get a whole range of responses. Um, it's one of the reasons why in Mahasi Center, uh, Mahasi's method, if you go to Burma and work with this idol, usually they will insist, absolutely insist, that when you sit, you follow the rising and falling of the abdomen. And when you walk, you follow the lifting, pushing, dropping of the foot. They insist on these two particular meditation objects. And if you say, look, I really don't like it, they'll, they'll reply, your likes and dislikes are irrelevant, just note it. If you say, it's not really working for me, they'll say, make more effort, be more persistent, just do it. <laughs> now the reason why is because they have learned to read the experiences that arise dependent upon those particular meditation objects with those meditation objects they can place you in the jnanas but if you've got another meditation object if you rock into an interview and say ah oh, mate my mind is my meditation object <laughs> how can they they can't it's just all bets are off in terms of trying to actually pinpoint what's going on <laughs> so it's partly control mechanism um but it's also a, a blueprint, isn't it? Yeah, but you've and got to have people... If you can't read the blueprint, yeah. why bother? And you, you've got to have people doing that particular thing mm -hmm. in order to, for the blueprint to be available. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to work with this person, well, they can't read you unless you do this. Mm -hmm. So you do this, so that they can read you. Also, I think the system of reporting yeah. is part of that blueprint. Yeah, how you actually report your experience. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually um, in in Malaysia. They there's been a lot of Mahasi teaching in Malaysia. And when I started teaching there, the impression I got, uh, I had the feeling that the standard of Mahasi teaching that most of the students had been exposed to was not very high. Mm. 
and I actually spoke to Bhante Akachita, who's the abbot, and he's an old student of Upandita, and he said, that's right. And a number of people feel that basically the standard of teaching is declining over time. The lineage is already in decline. Mm-hmm. For that reason. Anyway, so you have this system of jnanas. Now, you have some, it's the early jnanas. There are three of those, the first three of them. Um, just briefly, these are um, how to distinguish between mind and body, nama rupa paricheta jnani, um, conditionality, and finally comprehension or mastery. Now, these three jnanas basically constitute a general introduction to the three characteristics. They're like the beginner's introduction to anicca, dukkha, anatta. Uh, and they culminate in a deeper perception of impermanence. So you get this spiral thing. You get a kind of introductory level, three characteristics, and then you get a deeper level of impermanence. You go back to one characteristic. Uh, so the fourth jnana, Udaya Bhaya jnana, arising and ceasing, is all about impermanence. Um, that's where the understanding of impermanence becomes predominant and the mind is very settled and stable. You need a certain amount of samadhi to be able to get there. Um, so the first three jnanas basically give a cook's tour of the three characteristics Subsequent jnanas deepen and extend that insight, open it up wider, apply it to more realms of experience, and go deeper with it. Uh, so it's like a spreading out to every situation and a deepening down all the way to the unconstructed. So you have the first three, they're the introduction, and then from number four onwards, spreading out and going down. Um, and the fourth one is Udaya Bhaya, Jnana, uh, understanding of arising and passing away, arising and ceasing, where impermanence is predominant. Um, after that comes Dukkha. And this is what we're focusing on tonight. Now, before we get into that, first of all, an essential aspect of jnana is its universality. Jnana is always universal. Insight is always generalised. What's the difference between dukkha and dukkha jnana? It's the difference between the particular and the universal. Um, ordinary, everyday dukkha uh, is particular. So this situation that I'm in right now, this is Dukkha. I don't like this. But perhaps not that situation over there. Um, So an escape from Dukkha seems possible within the realm of the impermanent. This retreat is getting incredibly tedious, but an escape from this Dukkha is possible because it's over soon. I can hang out, it'll be over, then no more dukkha. I'll be to go home and lead a civilised life. So, within this understanding, we feel that there could be an alternative which could work. And this is what we find 
when we're doing the practice, and I don't know, has this ever happened to you, that you find yourselves living alternate lives? So you find yourself, for example, reimagining the past. If only I had done that instead of this, my life would have turned out much better. Have you ever done that? <coughs> has it ever seemed convincing at the time? So here there's a, there's a recognition of dukkha, but not its universality. Just a, a slight change in circumstances. And it all could have been completely different. I would have been... Okay. Um, you can also imagine an alternative future. When I get out of here, things will be different. It'll be much better when I get out of here. Or we can imagine an alternative present. Right now, I'll take a break. And then things will be better. So, all these fantasies seem real, all of them have power over us because our understanding of dukkha is still particular, not universal. If I could just change these circumstances, there'll be no more dukkha. Does that make sense? So in that situation, we have dukkha, we do not have dukkha jnana. Um, So let's get into the dukkha jnanas. The first one is bhanga, dissolution. Now, this, this is also the maturity of the perception of impermanence. If something is impermanent, that means it has a beginning, it has an end, and it has something in between. The Buddha says there's an arising, there's ceasing, and in the middle there is change while enduring. So something endures, but it changes. Um, now, you have fine different views of impermanence, depending on which angle you look at. Uh, Sayadaw Vivekananda gave the example, he said, imagine you live in a, an apartment building overlooking a freeway, or a raised um, highway, and the, or the traffic moves from your left to your right. If you look straight out the window, you have cars come and go. Come, they're there, they go. They arise, they're there, they cease. Arise, they cease. Arise, they cease. If you turn to the left, you have cars come, 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 arise, 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 arise. Turn to the right, you have cars go, 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 disappear, cease, 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 cease. So you get different views of impermanence depending on which angle the mind looks at it. The maturity of impermanence is when the mind sees the cessation aspect. When it sees, every time it looks, it sees things disappear. This is dissolution, bunga. Um, and this still part of impermanence. Still part of impermanence, but it's the border into dukkha. Into dukkha, ah. because when we perceive the bottomlessness, this is where we perceive the the groundlessness, the bottomlessness of experience. Everything's disappearing. Um, there's no ground. If we ask what lies beneath. Nothing at all. Just everything disappearing. Yeah? What determines the boundaries between the events? Each event could be broken up into smaller events. Mm. Yeah, it depends depends on how strong your mindfulness is and how strong your samadhi is and what angle the mind is looking at. So these are not absolutes. They're always appearances. They vary depending on circumstances. 
Um, in a weak aspect, uh, sometimes this can take the form of a, a meditator apparently losing concentration and being unable to focus on anything at all. So, you know, things were going really well, everything was going... Mine was completely clear. Now I focus on an object, blah, I can't find it. It's like, sometimes it's like... Um, uh, you're trying to hold onto something that slips out of your hand. As soon as you grab it, it slips away. I can't focus. The whole thing seems to, whole practice seems to have collapsed. In its strong form, it can be like falling into a black hole, this abyss, bottomless abyss. Uh, and what the mind is intuiting at this point is the bottomlessness, the turtles all the way down. And this is horrifying. The, the groundless nature of experience is being exposed. And so the next jnana is baya jnana, fear. Baya is fear. Um, the understanding of fear or terror. In a, in, a, in a weak form, this might be just a sense of existential unease. I feel uneasy. I don't know why. I just feel very uneasy. Nothing's going right. I feel helpless. Um, in a strong form, it could manifest as panic. Uh, but it always has this quality of a loss of control. I'm not in charge. Um, Patrick, what kind of time frames are we talking about with these things? Anything from a nanosecond to a year, to 10 years, to a lifetime. Time is completely irrelevant here. Um, people can slip through these very quickly or they can come rest into one yana and just be there for months, years at a time. Mm. Apparently <coughs> stuck. Just not necessarily stuck, just appreciate <coughs> just appreciate. Mm. Yes, when just experiencing it. Um, in Vasudhi Magga, Buddha Gosa doesn't call it Bayanyana, he calls it Bhaya which is understanding of appearance as fear. So not understanding <coughs> fear, but appearance as fear, or uh, or um, and he asks the question: Does the knowledge of appearance of as fear itself fear, or does it not fear? In other words, what's the relationship between the appearance of fear? and fear. And he gives a couple of similes. There's just one I want to mention. Imagine a person who sees three great charcoal pits mm. burn. Now the three indicate the three times, past, future and present. Um, anybody who steps into any of those pits would suffer an excruciating death. So they generate fear. Now the person looking at the charcoal pits burning away is not, does not personally feel afraid of them because she's not about to walk into them. But she understands that anyone who does fall into them would suffer enormous pain. So this is Buddha Gosa's attempt to explain the difference between fear and appearance as fear. And this similarly suggests detachment. So the universe is fearful and there's no hope in it at all. But if the mindfulness is strong and the concentration is strong, 
this prevents the practitioner from being emotionally entangled in it. So, in other words, fear, real fear, suggests taking danger personally. I am in danger, but the jnana, uh, when it's mature, indicates there is danger, but there's no one who is in danger. Uh, it could be roughly compared to watching a scary movie. So fear arises, but even as the fear is present, there's the understanding that the situation isn't real, and so the fear itself is not grounded. So this suggests, Buddha goes through saying, there's a detachment here uh, involved. Um, if they're in a world of appearances only, there's no need for actual fear. So this is a way of distinguishing between fear and fear as jnana, as understanding, which always implies some degree of not-self. Yeah, okay. What if you had um, experiences of, like you were talking about fear, but you didn't have a clue what it was about, so it wouldn't actually be the understanding? Then you'd be in trouble. <laughs> and people can be in trouble. People can end up in the mental health um, system as a result of going through uh, uh, insight into the uh, three characteristics. It's, uh, this, is, it's, it's, this is serious stuff. Through meditation or through some accidental experience? Either one. Either one. Let's talk, we'll talk about this a bit more. Let's come to, at the end of this. Um, well, yeah, so this, what Buddhaghosa's understanding presupposes that there is a strong grounding of anatta and concentration in the meditator. But what if the practitioner does not have such a grounding? This is the question that's being raised here. Like poor Yasa. If Yasa hadn't run into the Buddha, he could have been in serious trouble. He into the local mental mm -hmm. health team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you people can have psychological breakdowns as a result of either meditating or having an insight that a meditator would recognise as being on the curriculum. If it's just, if it's personal, if it's about me, then you could go crazy. Um, alternatively, fear could be turned into insight if the identification can be abandoned. So you might have someone in serious trouble, recognising the groundlessness of experience and the futility of life, but then be turned around if they can be persuaded this is not personal. It's about nature, not you. So this is the delicate balance, particularly important in Dukkhanyana. The absolute centrality do not take it personally it's rule number one in this game do not take anything personally because it is not personal but if we take it personally it can be dangerous and it is dangerous and people have serious problems this is the great risk of the, uh, the commercial commodification of mindfulness yeah because people are, people are talking about mindfulness as if it's a way of developing a better self. Yeah. 
as if it's all happy clappy. Yeah, and what happens is people start to develop insight into not self, or maybe not even insight into not self, happy talking yarnos, without any insight into not self, and they're going crazy. Yeah. Could it be happening to some people and it passes because everything passes? Yeah. And they recover from it, they're shaky, and maybe they'll just never go anywhere near this meditation spirituality bullshit again and stick to nice, safe materialism. But there'll always be an edge. There'll always be at the bottom this fear. Because there's always be the intuition that really there isn't anything down there. And it'll come out at the very latest, it will come out of death. And they could well have a very terrifying death experience. Um, and then next comes Adinava Jnana. This is understanding of danger or disadvantage. This is essentially the recognition of the impossibility of the situation. There's no refuge, there's nowhere to escape. Any fantasy of escape is seen to be just that. It's a fantasy. And I can't believe it. It's just it's nonsense. What's the call again? What's the call? Adinava. Danger or disadvantage. Um, then comes Nibbada Jnana. This is disenchantment. Um, and disenchantment, of course, remember we talked about that in Anatta Lakana Sutta. That's mm. the, the turning point in Anatta Lakana Sutta. And that Anatta Lakana Sutta goes through impermanence, dukkha, not self, but in a very compact way. In Nibbadanyana, disenchantment, the practitioner abandons the search for satisfaction. It's like, nothing's going to work. Okay, I could get out of this meditation centre, I could go home, that's not going to work. I could quit my job, collect my accumulated savings and head off to a tropical paradise, that's not going to work. I could buy a nice new car, that's not going to work. And So, why not just give up? Well, not just stop struggling and surrender. Um, and um, Buddha p- points out that these three jnanas, fear, danger or disadvantage and disenchantment, are essentially the same. They're, they're rather, they're different stages of maturity in the same understanding. So in Padisambhita Magga, it doesn't differentiate between these three. But Buddha goes up, separates them out. And then we get Munchitu Kamyata Jnana. This is the desire for deliverance. Um, yeah, this is also known as the get me out of here Jnana. Uh, and sometimes people do escape the meditation centre at this point. They, these, these could be the people who go rushing off into the night never to be seen again. Um, <laughs> Monks and nuns disrobe. Uh, um, you get different symptoms here. Sometimes intense physical pain and restlessness. Uh, sometimes people who disappear into their room to sleep most of the day. Get me out of here. It's just, just I can't stand this anymore. Just the mind is desperate to get out. Um, now this is. Um, uh, well, you notice how in these in these nianas, affect is central, vedana. So it's heart stuff. Uh, and what moves the heart? Sukha or dukkha? 
pleasure or pain. Um, and it's all about desire. So in this jnana, desire for deliverance, this is where desi- the question of desire really comes down to it. What is it we want? Now for the Buddha, the fundamental question is, do we desire the constructed or the unconstructed? Which one? Um, our habit is to desire the constructed. This is the world that we are familiar with. This is the real world. The world of normality. So this is the one that we want. All our desires go in the, into that w- w- world. In contrast, we don't know anything about the unconstructed. We can't. Because anything we know, quite unquote, about it is just more of the constructed. So we actually cannot know anything about it. Um, so if we don't know about it, how can we desire it? It's like we're caught in this catch-22. But if we become thoroughly disenchanted by the constructed, then, because we've learned to really fully understand it, then we learn to desire something else. There must be something better than this. I don't know what it is, but there must be something better. So, um, this is the desire for deliverance. But still, what is it that I desire? Now this again brings up the question of secular mindfulness or mindfulness in the psychotherapeutic tradition. If I am in a particular practice tradition, let's say I'm working within the Theravada or some other established tradition, then I may have at least a theoretical sense of what it is that I'm desiring. In other words, what is not, what's the alternative to this constructor? I can have at least some kind of theoretical understanding. Um, and so I can feel encouraged even if whatever it is is completely mysterious uh, even if it's just um, uh, can barely be perceived as an as a image in art a tanka a statue of a Buddha a temple but there's something in that tells me that there's something else that's better than the so-called real world, then that desire for deliverance can have a a direction, a target. Uh, Also, um, if, if I have teachers or senior practitioners who I can look up to as embodying some kind of understanding, then I can have a lived sense of what this might be. This is one of the things that John Hale gave to me as a teacher. Uh, I would look at him and I could see, oh, this is what the practice is about. He gave me a lived sense of what, what it is that I'm aiming for. And that's incredibly grounding and encouraging. But if I'm living in an entirely secular context, then at this point, I might be tempted to despair. I don't want all of this, which is familiar, which is normal, which is the real world. But what's the alternative? And I could be stuck. So again, the Dukkanyana brings up the dangers inherent in doing this practice. This practice is dangerous. We're messing with the mind.
Now, what gets the practitioner through all this is basically anatta, a growing understanding of not-self, which in terms... That's the understanding side, the vipassana side. On the citta side, this is matched by a developing mindfulness and equanimity. As the mindfulness gets stronger, the equanimity gets stronger. And of course, we've also got the concentration. So the heart is getting stronger, clearer, and more settled and more balanced. So it can go through experiences which before would have completely flipped me out. But I can go through them now because the understanding of not-self is getting stronger and the heart is getting more balanced, uh, more equanimous. Um, And so um, when the equanimity really starts to take off, then we move into patisanka jnana, or patisanka nupasana jnana. Uh, This is review. Um, And basically... Uh, again, these in practice, these jnanas have all, there are all sorts of experiences that characterise them. <clears throat> but it's, but it's often, what will happen is that the the meditator will start going through all the previous experiences they've had of dukkha. It's like marching. I remember when I went through this, one of the weirdest things was I'd sit there and it was it was like I was in the stand of a military parade ground, and marching in front of me was all the dukkha that I'd gone through kind of marching past and saluting me as, as they went by. It was really weird. Um, uh, but uh, review also reviews um, the other um, characteristics as well. So it's like all the characteristics can be swimming in front at this point. But what... It's, uh, uh, it, it, it can be like a guided tour of the nature of human suffering, but it's becoming increasingly refined. And as a, and the sense of not-self is getting stronger and stronger. And so the sense of any personal threat is just fading away. And it becomes really interesting. Wow. Look at that. That's really weird. That bit of dukkha. Why is uh, it so painful? Hmm? Why is it so painful? Not enough anatta. Not enough equanimity. Mm. <laughs> Doesn't it get re- very refined and very interesting? Mm. I remember one time I was doing walking meditation and it was su- I suddenly realised, wow, even awareness hurts. <laughs> <laughs> that is really weird. <laughs> it was just fascinating. <laughs> um, and this jnana is rather similar to samasana, the third jnana, um, except much deeper, uh, much more refined. But again, mindfulness is developing, and mindfulness means it develops because it doesn't matter what it is, just be with it, just be with it, just be with it. Just note it, look at it. Sometimes you can't note it. It's impossible. But you just be with it, just accept it, just face to face. This is what it is. Don't avoid it. If we're re- avoiding, face to face with the fact that I'm avoiding, just face to face with it. The mindfulness gets stronger and stronger. With the mindfulness comes the equanimity. This allows the concentration to develop. Uh, and this allows the, the, this very subtle sense of not self to gradually come into 
prominence. And again, not-self is the most subtle because it's not a something. It's the absence of a something. But when um, anatta becomes predominant, then the dukkhanyanas end and we move into sankarupa kanyana, equanimity regarding all constructions. And this, at this point, the mindfulness equanimity dominate the heart. What's apparent is not self, and everything's a lot smoother. And then this is the where anatta is now predominant, and this is the one that just keeps rolling along. The question of the distinction between dukkha and dukkhinyana, we could say more broadly the distinction between psychology and dharma. And this is relevant for our culture. And just very briefly, you could say that psychology deals with people and their problems, I would say, as a non-psychologist. Um, dharma does not. Dharma does not deal with people and their problems. Dharma practice cannot solve anyone's problems. If anybody comes to the Dharma to solve their problems, they're wasting their time. What the practice can do is show us that we and our problems are empty and without self. That's Dharma's job. In the first truth, the Buddha is clear that the practitioner's job is not to solve their dukkha, but to understand it. This is in the Four Truths. The duty attached to the first truth, dukkha, is to understand, to fully understand dukkha, not to solve it, not to get rid of it. And when we understand our dukkha, when we understand our dukkha, we realise there is no we involved. That's what the Dharma offers. Um, as the Buddha says to Venerable Kachana Gotta, um, a mature practitioner quote, has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising what ceases is only dukkha ceasing so dharma allows us to give up on the me and the my problem and when that happens my problem is not solved it's dissolved it's a whole different um, thing so Dharma and, and psychology are two different projects but they are not two worlds in um, parallel universes that never intersect of course they intersect so for example we can from our practice learn something about our psychological makeup um, and this in turn can help us with our practice they, 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 um, they can help each other so we learn from our story. When I do the practice, I learn from my story and I create a variation of the story. My story gets a new meaning. And this meaning can be very useful because meaning is powerful, but also it may even give me a different mode of attention. What I'm working with when I meditate is attention. We may learn from our story where, which it belongs to the realm of psychology, where the best place is to aim our attention, which is in the realm of the practice. 
what are the conditional relationships most, most worth exploring to shed light on our situation? So these two, these, they're separate, but they intersect. They're not completely cut off from each other. So one can help the other. But they are two distinct projects. They're not the same project. At a fundamental level, we learn we are never going to find the right story. It's just not going to happen. All stories are unsatisfactory. At Watswan Mok in southern Thailand, they, Ajahn Buddhadasa built what he called a spiritual theatre and put all sorts of weird exhibits inside it. But he had these little paintings on the, along the wall. And one of it had this fat Chinese monk doing the stretch that we do in the morning where we push the ceiling up with our hands and this guy, big belly. He's got this big grin on his face and there's this little verse underneath in Thai with an English translation. And the English translation goes, O boundless joy, now I see there is no happiness in this world. <laughs> and this is the, the essence of the Dukkhanyana. The joy that comes out of it. And it's boundless. Because there's no one there. There's no self involved. Okay, that's more than enough tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs>